0: Well, good morning. Good to be together this morning. Uh, Good to have you guys. Let's get into Nehemiah chapter 9. That's what we're here for, all right? So open your Bible, turn your Bible on. If you need a Bible, you can grab one out of the pew in front of you. And let's look into Nehemiah chapter 9 here this morning. So the wall is finished. the law has been read, and now what we see is that we see the people basically making confession and uh, kind of a picture of repentance. And, and that repentance begins again with understanding more and more about magnifying the character and the nature of who God is. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani. Cadmeel, shebaniah Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chenania, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So, <clears throat> we see this picture where the the, the people of God. Uh, one thing that jumps out here is that they have separated themselves from the other people. And, and, and this is honestly just simply because God's people are supposed to know better. We're supposed to, we're supposed to understand that it's a different economy that we're living under. It's, it's a different way of life that we're living that's different from the world. Now, now remember, too, Romans 12, 2 reminds us that we're to be in this world, not separated and excluded out of it but we're not supposed to be of the world. And this is the real balancing act that Christians have. This is the real difficult things that we have as believers is is how do we be in this world but not of it? See, there's a real necessity for the people of God to look different than the world looks. To be in it, to be involved in it. Why? Because we have a commission. We have a great commission that has been given to us to go and to be active in this world, to be making disciples, to be seeing people come to salvation, to come into relationship with Jesus. But we're also supposed to stand out just enough that we look kind of weird, right? Not creepy Christian kind of weird. You know, we don't want to go that far. We don't want to be creepy Christians. But we also want to have people at times that go, "Why, why do you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you operate in this sense? Why would you be generous in this opportunity? Why, why would you give? Why would you serve? Why would you do some of the things that you do? And, and and the reason for a lot of that is so that we can have that answer and that testimony that says we do it because because we serve Jesus, right? And, and, and this is the nature of who Jesus, who he, he came to serve and he came to give in ways and on levels that, that, that we could never even match or understand. But, but, but when we understand a little bit about who he is, it begins to change us and it begins to move us into this living kind of a different way. So for three hours they're listening, they're hearing God's law go in, and for three hours they are confessing their sin, both theirs and their fathers. It says they're both confessing their own personal sin, and it says the iniquity of their fathers. And so one of the differences between maybe sin and iniquity is this: is that, is, is that sin is it can be uh, sin. We can be things that we're doing that that just miss the mark. Right, sin, the, this, it, the word itself is a Greek term, it's an archery term, it means to miss the mark, and the mark is the righteousness of who God is. So any time that we do that, whether we're aware of it or unaware of it, there are both sins of commission, things that we have done, and there's also sins of omissions, things that we ought to have done. And so regardless of whether a lot of times we're aware of that or not, it's still just labeled as sin. It's sin in our lives. Iniquity kind of holds a little bit of a different idea. Iniquity has this idea of, of understanding it, of knowing it, and of just willingly and rebelliously going up against it. In other words, what they began to confess too was that our fathers knew better and, and, and they, they, they did this other thing anyway. They just kind of went their own way anyway. See, and so confession is this thing, it's a, it's a really hard thing because it, it's something that, that gets, it requires humility, it requires us to, uh, to just get real with it. See, confession is something that, that brings us into a right relationship with our situation. A wrong sit- right relationship with our situation starts to look like denial, right? And, and remember, denial isn't just a river in Egypt. Denial is this state that we live in where we won't acknowledge the reality of sin in our lives and how it's affecting our lives and not just our lives, but the lives of those around us as well. See, and, and what happens is that, see, if we stay in denial, there's no hope. There's no hope in denial. There's no hope for change. There's no hope for something different. In denial, we just stay in our rebellion, we stay angry, we stay upset, we stay just in this place of rebellion, refusing to move over and to see something different. Confession becomes this way that God begins to work a process of healing in us. See, what happens is when we move into agreeing with God or we move into a place of what we would call repentance... When we begin to agree with the things of God, we step out of denial and into reality. Now, when we step into reality, we're now starting to step into a place where the God of reality operates. You see, he doesn't operate in denial because he's a God of truth. He's a God of of righteousness. And and so he's not going to meet us in this place of denial. As a matter of fact, when we sit in denial, he's going to allow us by our free will to stay there. Whether it's destructive or, or, or not, he's going to allow us to stay there because God is, is just, this is the kind of God he is. Now don't get me wrong, there are times where he'll interrupt that for us in a really big way, but we still, by a volition of our will, make a decision as to whether we will stay in a place of rebellion and denial or if we will step over into a place of admittance beginning to agree with God, of of looking at God's standards and what he's calling us to, and and just admitting, simply admitting, I'm I'm wrong. I'm not living into this. I'm living in a way that is rebellious to what you've called. And when we do that, we open our lives up to, to a whole new thing. We open our lives up to the possibility of healing. We also open our lives up into another economy, another economy, which is God's economy, and God's economy doesn't always make sense to us. See, there's the world and the way that the world is doing things, and there's many times that the way that the world is doing it seems to make great sense to us. And we say, gosh, it just makes sense, and everybody's doing it, and since everybody's doing it, it must, therefore, be kind of the right thing to do. But you see, when we subject ourselves to an economy like that, the economy of the world, it's out of that economy that we, that we get paid back. That's where our dividends come out of. But when we step over into God's economy, everything begins to change. We begin to live for different things, and we get different results out of what we're doing. Verse 5, then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pithiah said, stand up and bless the Lord our God. From everlasting to everlasting, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. And so this this prayer, we now enter into a prayer that the Levites are giving, and it's the longest prayer that we see in Scripture. And roughly, if we were to just read through this, we could read through it with all of the annunciations and all of that kind of stuff, and it would take us roughly six to seven minutes to to read the longest prayer that we see in the Bible, which is kind of a, a good case sometimes for short prayers. Sometimes our prayers, we think that the longer that we have them go on, the more spiritual and righteous they are. But but anyway, this is the longest prayer that we see. It's roughly six to seven minutes in length here. And, and, and it begins with the adoration and the proclamation of who God is. Remember, these people, and just like Ben was saying, these people are in a place of repentance, of, of agreeing with God, of having heard the law and agreeing with God, evaluating their lives and using, using the Bible as kind of this yardstick or this measuring rod uh, of of what their life has looked like is looking like in comparison to that and they're now they're entering into this place of of confession and repentance but it begins with adoration and the acknowledgment and the reality of of who God is it, it's the pro, where they begin to proclaim his goodness and, and his power and his majesty and and who this God is you see and if we don't have an objective place of reference see, then, then, then we can never, we're, we're left simply to argue our feelings with one another. If there's not objective truth out there, then, then you see, you and I are just left to argue about what we think or what we feel with everybody else. You see, if, if, if the standard of this life is simply Darwinian evolution, and it's, just, it's all just about the, uh, the survival of the fittest, then it's a dog-eat-dog out, world out there, and you and I would be a fool to not just live for ourselves. But you see, God is calling us to live in a, man, in a manner and a means in a peculiar way outside of ourselves. But you see, without a God, there is no objective reality. We have to have God before we can have a place of objective reality that we can look to and that we can then measure from. See, if it's just you and me, well, then who's to say who's right? Who's to say that this is right or this is wrong? It simply becomes just a matter of opinion. But if God, the creator of all things, who holds all power, says things and gives us truth and brings law and meaning and purpose into life, then maybe we should think about that. See, the entire world, the entire universe that we live in is, is regulated by law. Mathematics runs the universe that you and I live in. And these things, while science at different times as it explores it, it certainly changes thoughts on that. But out there, there is truth that exists. There are things like gravity. And I know some people will argue, well, there's a theory of gravity. and I'm telling you, gravity's true. Just go up on the roof and step off of the roof and you'll find out that gravity is true, right? And here's the thing about truth. What you believe about gravity changes nothing about the reality of gravity. You can believe whatever you want to believe about gravity, but the truth of gravity will take over at the point in time you step off and you enter into that realm. You see, this is what we're looking at as we look into God. See, it begins this idea, and, and Nehemiah has talked about it It's this fear of the Lord or a right awe and respect of who this God is. It, it's, it's about revealing His glory and His majesty. And, and what that does is when we, when we look at God's glory and His majesty, then it begins to reveal our sinfulness to us. We, we see this uh, regularly um, in the Bible. You see, it begins with God and... and, and uh, this begins with God, and what we're looking at is giving the authority of our lives back over to this God. See, Psalm 51 verse 4 is the psalm that, that David wrote when he repented for his sin with Bathsheba. He was, he was challenged by the prophet Nathan, and Nathan told him this little parable. He said, he, uh, the backstory right, is that, is that Uriah the Hittite, one of David's main guys, his one of his mighty men, uh, David, lusted after his wife and, and basically had an adulterous relationship with her. And then he just went on with life like, like it was no big deal. But what, what was worse was that she got pregnant. And so to try to conceal the pregnancy, he brought Uriah back off of the battlefield because that's where he was at. And Uriah, and he said, okay, well, what'll happen is that Uriah will sleep with his wife and, and, and then the pregnancy will be theirs or considered theirs, and I'll be, I'll be off the hook. Well, Uriah had too much integrity. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sleep with my wife while my men are out on the battlefield. And so he wouldn't go in and and sleep with his wife. So so David comes up with his B plan, which is, "I, I send Uriah to the front lines of the battle. And whenever the battle begins, everybody retreat away from him and allow him to be killed. He murdered him. David murders one of his good friends over this. And eventually, because he's king and maybe he doesn't think much of it, I don't know, but eventually, this prophet, Nathan comes to him, and this prophet says to him, he says, hey, you know what? I got to tell you this story. Hey, there's this old man, and, and this old man, uh, all he had was this little lamb, and he loved this little lamb. This little lamb was everything to him. It was his companion. He didn't have any family. He didn't have anybody, and all he had was this lamb, and, and the guy that he works for basically one day got some some guests over And so he said, hey, um, I need something to feed my guests. Hey, go get that little lamb from that old guy and and kill it and serve it up to my guests. And David said, what? He said, who is this man? He needs to die. And he said, it's you. And, and, And David writes Psalm 51 in this place of a broken heart. A recognition with the reality of, of who he had been and what he had done. And, and, and Psalm 51 verse 4, it, it, it magnifies, it, it goes back to God and he says this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, David, the place that he begins is with God. And his recognition is this, is that even though, yes, he's sinned against Uriah and their family and, and, uh, and this, caused this whole mess, he, he first goes and says, it's against you, God, that I sinned. And, and, and this is this place where we see David's broken and contrite heart and his repentance for what he's done. Isaiah, we see Isaiah, when he comes into the presence of God, we don't see this until chapter 6. So Isaiah has been a prophet for a, for a period of time. In verse 6, he, he comes and he, he, he sees the, the throne room, the temple of, of God in, in his throne room. And, and his reaction to seeing God face to face is this. He says, "'Woe is me, for I am lost.'" For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says his his reaction to that is, I'm undone. I'm dead. I'm a dead man right now because I have seen God, and I am a man of unclean lips dwelling among among a people of unclean lips. Peter, in Luke 5.8, we see Peter says... But when Simon Peter, this is after they draw up the net that's full of fish after they fished all night. But when Peter Simon saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's a fisherman. You know something just happened when he didn't go, wow, man, look at all the big fish in my net. This is awesome. No, he fell on his face and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This is what... The presence of God, this is what the reality of God and the fear of God really conjure up in us is that you know our sin tends to magnify us and puff us up, but when we magnify God, it has this way of humbling us and bringing us into a right spot of where we're kind of really at. And it's not a bad thing that this is happening. It's a good thing that this is happening because this is really what we need. See, we don't need to be magnifying ourselves and thinking that, that, that the things that we're doing or whatever aren't a big deal. But to see God, see, sometimes I think Christians, we, we think this. We think that, man, when Jesus returns, that we're just going to all run around. We're just going to be high fiving each other and stuff. Man, look, Jesus is back. Wow, yeah, no, you're going to be on your face. You're going to be on your face because this is who he is. He, he's, he's not just a buddy. He's the creator of the universe. He holds all power. And when we begin to use him and recognize that him and his righteousness is the standard by which God's people are called to operate, what you'll notice too is that they've they've separated themselves from the world because it begins with God's people. See, God's people keep pointing the finger outside saying, it's all them, it's them, it's them. If they would change, if they would, if they would turn it around, if they would get their lives together or figure it all out, then this world would be a better world that we're living in. But that's not what God says in his word. Second Corinthians 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. 1 Peter 4, 17 tells us that judgment begins in the house of God. See, we've got to recognize that we're the people who have been given the standard. We're the people by which God has begun to reveal himself, and we're the people where this is going to change. If, if we're going to see change in the world out there, it's got to start here. We've got to become a people that look different, that understand that God's good ways are something that He's calling us to. Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gershite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Again, it it just goes back to God. It goes back to who God is. Who was Abram? Abraham, he, was a, he was an idol worshiper from Mesopotamia, just like all the other idol worshippers from Mesopotamia. But God got a hold of him and chose him and pulled him out and began to reveal himself to the world through Abram, the line of Jacob, and ultimately what would become Israel and the people of Israel. And now is the church. It's the means by which God is revealing himself to a broken and need, needful world See, we don't have a right understanding of who God is, and we really need revelation from God as to who He is. I remember so fresh in my life whenever I I got this as a, like, right prior to becoming a believer, I really honestly felt like God just said to me, try, who do you think you are? You you, you don't even know what's going to go on in 100 years. What makes you think you're some kind of authority on eternity? But I was the guy who was like, oh, here's what I think. I think this, and I think that, and blah, blah, blah. And and, and here's what I think this, and I don't believe that, and I believe that. And and God just took me to this place of saying, who do you really think you are? You, You should check yourself, try. You should actually humble yourself. And maybe you should actually be a guy, instead of being the authority, maybe you should become a guy who's under authority. And I made that decision in my life, and it's the best decision I ever made, was to become under authority and to give up ruling the universe. I used to do that. I mean, you guys probably didn't know that about me. But I did. That wasn't a big deal. (laughs) And see, God has given us His Word so that we have a means of understanding of who He is and what this life is actually about. Verse 9 as we continue to look to God and magnify God. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants and all the people of his, this, of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. God is a deliverer. He's telling us about that. He is the one who is the deliverer. If you're in need of deliverance of something today, He's the answer. See, it's not about just, like, like Ben was saying, it's not about magnifying on, 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 on your stuff and what you're not doing right, because that never works. Your self-will will take you till about Tuesday at best, if it's like mine, but God can change our lives. See, when we begin to magnify him and we begin to understand who he is, then we don't, we're not left in this place of magnifying our own sin. We start to recognize that this God is a deliverer. He's the one who's able to deliver us out of this mess. He's the one who's been faithful to do it for all of history. And we see here that he's delivering the people of Israel out of the bondage of Pharaoh, and and, and he's, and he's, he's freeing them. This is the gospel. This is part of the gospel. You see, all of Genesis is really just preaching the gospel, and this is a picture of you and I being set free out of sin and our bondage to sin that we've been in. Verse 12, by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. God is leading us, and God is doing it 24-7, in the day, by smoke, at night, by a pillar of fire. You see, God never takes a break. He never has a day off. He never needs anything. He never needs to rest or anything, and He is always there, and He's always available, and He's always leading and guiding you and I. He is our guide verse 13 You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments and you made known to them your holy sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your ser- your servants God is the legislator He is the one who makes law and when he makes law it's good law and it's there to preserve our freedom. It's there to keep us free, not to inhibit us from things, but to keep us free. He's the legislature, and his rules and statutes are what we really must live by. See, good law begins with God's law. God's law trumps man's law, and man's law needs to be made in accordance to what God's law is. In this whole thing, too, we see this God, we're going to see He's full of mercy, and He's full of grace, and He's full of love, and He's faithful, and He's patient time and time and time again. But we need a measuring rod. We need something to measure from, and God's Word and God's law becomes that for us. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. He's the provider. He gives fish and loaves, right? We, we see this miracle of Jesus where, where he takes some, uh, a couple fish and five loaves and, and he feeds 5,000, in reality, probably about 20,000 people. But it's not a big deal for God. You know, God does that every single day. God multiplies these things on this earth, and he feeds people. And the only reason that people go hungry on earth today is because we won't provide. We don't think it's of economic benefit to us to provide for the needs of the world. It's in in our, our reach. We can do it. We can provide. Everything is there that we need to do. But yet, what do we do? We point the finger at God, and we're angry with God because there are people in this world who are without, and I think that God just points the finger back at us, and he says, well, there's four point That's that deal, right? There's four pointing back at you because you have what you need to be able to do this to feed the people in the world. You know, we could, fi- we could provide fresh water, sanitation, and food for the whole world, for what we spend on ice cream in the United States and Europe? That's the truth. It's crazy. He's a provider, though, and he's good. And he is the bread that came down from heaven, and he is the source of water from the rock. Jesus said this on purpose, and it segues right here with this prayer. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 1 Corinthians 10.4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's a provider for us, and he's still doing it today. He provides for all of our needs and everything, and its source of every good thing that you and I have is sourced right back to him. If you have talents and abilities, and you've been able to make a lot or do well in your life, it all came from him. It all came because he gave that to you. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. It's this constant cycle of rebellion. Verse 17 They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. This rebellion, it just continues to go on, but we see that this God is slow to anger, that that God is actually patient. And many times when we think about the Old Testament, we don't think about the Old Testament and a patient and gracious God. We think about a God who is just judging and and vengeful and things like that, but that is not what is actually happening. When you look at the times where God brings judgment, it's it's always after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of sending prophets and people to redirect the people and to get them back on track, and their stiff-necked and their absolute refusal to do this. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is... "'Your God who brought you out of Egypt "'and had committed great blasphemies, "'you in your great mercies "'did not forsake them in the wilderness. "'The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way "'did not depart from them by day, "'nor the pillar of fire by night "'to light for them the way by which they should go. "'You gave your good spirit to instruct them "'and did not withhold your manna from their mouth "'and gave them water for their thirst.' 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and people, peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the king of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land and they, as, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured for them fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest... They did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. There's a cycle that goes from bondage to freedom and then back to bondage. I'm forgetting the guy who, who wrote this, but he wrote this, a guy did not me. (laughs) It says, deep bondage in a nation produces great faith or a turning back to God. Great faith produces great courage. Great courage produces great freedom. Great freedom produces great abundance. Great abundance produces great apathy. Great apathy produces great dependence. Great dependence produces great bondage. Don't we see this in the world? Don't we see this as being true even in our own nation right now? I believe that, that our nation has turned its back. We've turned our, its back on the principles and the things of God. And not only have we done that, but we've begun to become a, a nation that embraces and calls what is evil good and what is good evil. The Bible talks about this in the end, and it, it talks about this. And, and we see see, it's a proof that we just don't know how to do this. We don't know how to do this apart from God. We don't know how to do life. And it's obvious that we don't. And we see that this God has been gracious, and he's been patient, he's been loving, and he's been kind to God's people the whole time. Verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon your, our kings and our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. See, they're, they're, they're acknowledging the goodness, the graciousness, the, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. They're, they're beginning to say, look, you're right and we're wrong. And this looks like Repentance again. You see, we've got to start to become a people that quit asking why, why, why is this this way? Why is my life going this way? Why can't I have better relationships? Why is there? And we got to start asking how. How do we have something different? How do we have different results? How do we have better relationships? Because God has given us instruction, and He's here to help us. See, He's here. He's for us, and He's for our good. But we've got to ask how, and then we've got to become a people who are committed to follow. Verse 35, even in their own kingdoms, and amid amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you, or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests." So the people are beginning to to move out of this. They're they're acknowledging you're right and we're wrong. They're agreeing with God and they're they're making a commitment to make a change. They're about to do a covenant with God here in chapter 10 about talking about the things that they are going to do. And this is just where we're at, I think, as as God's church, is that we, we need to be a people who are reckoning with our own stuff, our own sin, and, and, and making uh, uh, prayers of, of repentance, that, that we've agreed way too much with the world and the things of the world, and we've been not just in it, but we've been of it. We, we've, we've, we've went along, and we've, we haven't looked different, and we haven't loved our neighbor in the way that God has called us to. But again, we see this God who is rich in mercy, who is full of grace, who is full of goodness, who stands ready to deliver life right into our communities, to deliver life to us personally, to give us a different economy and a different means of life. Lord, we just ask, God, that you would forgive us, that, God, you would set our feet onto a a solid path, that, God, we would recognize and we would know that all of your ways are good, that you haven't given us these rules and regulations just to control us or just to, just to, uh, to frustrate us, but, but, but that you're in your ways, our life. And when we follow them, we find life and we find goodness. Forgive us in our rebellion, God. Forgive us for just going our own way. Forgive us for making life about ourselves, Lord. Forgive us for our greed and our selfishness, God. Help us, forgive us just that we are consumers that can... To the nth degree, and we leave nothing for our neighbor. Help us, God, to to get outside of ourselves, Lord. Help us to to recognize, to see your goodness and your grandeur. Help us to see who you are and to magnify you. Help us that we might humble ourselves and pray that we might that you might even instill in us a desire to follow close to you and to look different in this world. Help us, Lord, in the midst of, of our wealth. Because in that place, it's a, it's a difficult and a hard place to see um, what you're calling us to. Help us to realize that we're never self-sufficient, that we're not a self-made people, but you've given us, you're a, a good God that has extended to us every good gift, every good thing, that it finds its source in a good Father. So we're grateful. We're grateful for this day. We're grateful for all of the many things that you've given us. But Lord, help us to, to keep those things in their right perspective. Help us to prioritize our lives in a way that magnifies who you are, that reflects who you are, that shows the world that we truly are relationally connected to you. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be both individuals and to be church, churches and church bodies within uh, this, this world that, that are just different enough that, that when people look at us, they say, I want to be a part of that. I, I, I want that, that, that. It draws uh, into a deep place in us, and, and we say, well, I want to be a part of that community. I want to participate in that. So help us, Lord, that we might be all of those things, and we ask it, and we need you, Jesus, to have that, to be anything. And we praise you, and we pray in your name. Amen.